we start? We're good. Okay, we're on. We, three of us. No. <laughs> um, let me uh, let me pray for us before we get started. I will. <clears throat> for those of you who are, hopefully a lot of you, but some of you are joining by Zoom. Um, and if you missed last week, I'll give a bit of a recap, kind of what we talked about and what the class is, and then we'll get started today um, as well. But let me pray for us and pray for me. Uh, I would appreciate your prayers in this. Lord, we do thank you for the day. We thank you for your kindness and, Lord, your goodness. God, you know how inadequate I am um, to stand up here and how sinful I am. Um, Lord, I pray for your help today. I pray for your your guidance. Um, Lord, I pray that what we, um, what I talk about today and what we think about today will um, not be just sort of an abstract thing that we store away somewhere in our thoughts. But God, that we would really consider um, not my words, but Lord, about what we talk about today because it really reveals your character and your nature of who you really are. So as we think about these things, we're actually um, thinking about you. And so, Father, I pray that <clears throat> for some who've never really thought this way before, um, that they would seriously consider um, in the next few minutes um, what it is that and how it is that you have revealed yourself. Um, and so we pray these things, and I ask them in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Super glad that, um, that you're here. So this is a, just a set of a recap from last week. We're doing a 10-part study, 10 series, um, on the topic of apologetics. So last week, I went pretty basic in the sense that I briefly defined what apologetics is um, and what it's not. So if you missed any of that, I would encourage you to go back and to look at and um, listen to um, the first lesson from last week. I think it might be pretty helpful in that. Um, w one of the challenges of teaching a class like apologetics is that, once again, apologetics is making a defense for the Christian faith, Christian apologetics. You can make an apologetic about anything, but we are specifically making the argument for the truth claims of Christianity. Okay? And there's always uh, a risk in teaching. It's humbling to teach a class like this because, once again, we've got a lot. It's, it's a difficult topic to begin with. And if you're not careful, it can end up in, in philosophy and philosophic ideas. And people get kind of frustrated because you get kind of bogged down in these ideas. Um, and yet some people love to talk about these things. And so the challenge comes in that, um, bringing these ideas down and trying to help us all sort of understand them in a way that's applicable to our lives and that we can take away from this and apply them to our lives and maybe to our kids' lives and to your grandkids' lives as well. So that's really helpful. Um, the, the other challenge in this too is that we, we probably have a wide range of audience just in age as well. So we've got, hopefully, I pray, we've got some um, junior high kids that are watching this too. So you've got young kids, and then we've got people who are older, let's say. Um, and there's this wide range uh, of people in this. So I also have to be really aware of who I'm talking to in this. So you're going to have to pardon me if you are in one of those categories where you perhaps are a bit older and wiser in apologetics, because for some of these things, some of these arguments I'm going to be making, I know, and you will know, that I may have skipped over a couple of steps just for the ease of trying to explain this, okay, for people who are really new to this. So that's why it's really helpful um, to put on the handout, and I'll talk about the handout in just a second, to put on the handout um, an email address for myself um, and then my other two cohorts that are teaching this, Sam Dawson and Kevin McCollum as well. So if you have a question, you want me to like drill down onto something like, hey, you skipped over this, what about this? I would be super happy to address that question, but you probably want to email me that, okay? Um, and then I will take the time to, to, to apply to that too. I'll also pause today as usual to take questions from, from people here or people that are watching by, via Zoom. 
Um, and also, too, if you have questions specific to today's lesson, I would be super happy to, to try to clarify those questions or answer those questions. But if it's a question that kind of, it's kind of a bit broader than that, that maybe goes into another category, then I want to answer that question, but I'm going to save that question till the very end of the course. So if you notice on the back of your handout, so by the way, this handout is accessible on the uh, church website, I believe. It's also, I, I bet that um, Stephen has already posted that in the chat box as well for Zoom. But this is also on the church website under the COVID page, I believe. So you can find this handout, it's up on the screen um, as well. And you'll notice that the last lesson, 10, um, on August the 23rd, I've titled this Conversations Q&A. So Sam, Kevin, and I will We'll sift through some questions. If you have some, that'll be a good time if you want to come and pose some questions as well. Um, and then we may be sort of, I may be asking these two guys some questions also. Um, <laughs> so we, we'll have so hopefully a dialogue and a conversation. And that hopefully will be helpful uh, to you um, um, in that. Okay. So um, I want to do a better job today leading us through this handout. So it's really imperative that you, that you kind of follow along with this. And I need to help us probably a little bit better in sort of following through with that. So um, I'm going to try to do a, a, a better job of that um, perhaps today as well. So on the part one, introduction to the case of naturalism. So let me really quickly recap what I talked about last week. I won't spend a lot of time on this. Last week we talked about... If you go back to Christians, to quote Al Mohler, we need a world today that's full of thinking Christians that are thinking Christianly, okay? And that requires, obviously, thought and careful thought about the world. Not just about what you believe, but you really want to be aware of what other people believe around you, okay? This is the idea of a worldview, and everyone has one. And I kind of cut to the chase last week. And I said that there is a dominant worldview today. Not everyone holds it, obviously, and people in our culture hold kind of parts and pieces of different worldviews. Um, but the dominant worldview today is the worldview of naturalism. Okay? And naturalism, simply put, is this. So I gave you this silly illustration, but hopefully it's a memorable one as well. Naturalism would be described this way. So I, in the end of the lecture last time, I, or lesson last time, I went through sort of the, the basic elements. I won't go through all those in here, but the basic component of naturalism is this. If this box represents the universe, the known physical world, naturalism holds that there is nothing outside this box. God did not make the box. And that automatically gives us some questions like, how did the box get here? Which we'll get to next week. Okay? But the basic idea of naturalism is that everything in this world that we know, everything in the natural order, can be explained, is self-explanatory by something else that's found in the box. So, for instance, there's, once again, there's nothing, according to naturalism, that's outside this box. Okay? So you see this drawing uh, on the back page of your handout where I reproduced this idea. I drew a box. I said, this is the physical world and the universe, and there's nothing outside that. Okay? I even went through some different worldviews of deism and all that. Friends, that's really important because today we want to look at, I want to take that idea and move, move that idea to today's lesson. And what I mean by that is this. Last week, I did not underscore, I did not give you any sort of argument. Okay, and when I mean argument, I don't mean like, like people on TV screaming at one another, right? Um, I mean giving you an argument that's made up of propositions, that you, it's either true or not true, um, in the case of trying to do Christian apologetics. And today I want to do that. I want to try to give you an argument. And the way I want to approach it is this way, okay? I think we can maybe see this in some, some sense. If we go back to the very premise of what um, naturalism holds, that everything 
that can be explainable is explained with inside the box, and there's nothing outside the box. Okay? That's naturalism. If we can show that there is at least one thing that transcends the box that's outside the box, then those who hold to the worldview of naturalism, if you want to be intellectually honest, you would want to seriously reconsider this worldview. I'll say this one more time, because this is the whole premise of this whole lesson today. If we can show that there's at least one thing that's explainable, that transcends the box, that's not dependent upon the box, or what's inside the box, then the worldview of naturalism has some serious problems. It's foundationally serious. Okay? So what do I mean by that? Well, last week I said that a worldview, if you want to test a worldview, it has kind of four parts to the test. And Brad even asked me to repeat the test, so hopefully you saw that as well. And one of the primary tests for a worldview is the, is the test of reason. Is it logical? Is it contradictory? And if it's contradictory, then you probably want to reassess the worldview that you have. Uh, other parts of the worldview is, does it match up with outer experience? Does it match up with inner experience? And is it practical? It's the test of being practical. Can you put it into practice, in other words? And so the whole premise of this today is to look at that, that very thing, right? And that's what this will focus on today. In other words, if naturalism can be explained, if there's another explanation for naturalism, if there's something that transcends the box, then this worldview will fall apart. And I'm going to argue today, I'm going to make an argument. It's not my argument. I'm not that smart. I wish I were that smart. Um, this is actually a really old argument. It's called the transcendental argument. But to get to that argument, I want to back up a few steps along the way. Okay? And I want to back up to point um, and to look at point number two. Okay? Point number two. Um, on your handout, I have included a quote and a picture. All right? A quote and a picture. Um, just like I did last week. Last week I gave you a quote from Dr. Moeller, and then I gave you two pictures for us to look at. So this week, one quote, one picture. Okay? Um, and the quote comes from a book that was published uh, in 1987. Okay? The quote's at the top of the handout. Right? Uh, and this book published the year I graduated high school. So that shows you perhaps how old I am. 1987. You can do the math on that. Um, came out by a professor. His name was Alan Bloom. And Professor Bloom was a professor at the University of Chicago. Okay? And Professor Bloom wrote this book with this quote. As a matter of fact, it's like the first page of the book. Okay? There's a really nice paragraph. I forwent the paragraph and just gave you the single quote here. It's a fascinating book. If you, if you check it out in the library, whenever we can go back to the library perhaps, you can check this book out and you can see on the very first page, you don't even have to read the whole book, just read the first chapter. Professor Bloom makes an argument. Remember, this is 1987, a long time ago. Okay? And he made the argument that 95%, 95% of the incoming high school seniors into their freshman year in college, that 95% of them uh, were relativist. Okay? That's a, I mean, this is 1987. This is 2020. Okay? Um, we've come a long way in a, sh in a short period of time. And you can only imagine that number today. If it's 95% then. Well, uh, Dr. Bloom gave a quote at the very beginning of this book. By the way, the title of the book is The Closing of the American Mind. The Closing of the American Mind. And when this book was published, it was kind of like a bombshell in the intellectual world, in the marketplace of ideas. This hit, and it hit hard. Okay? And Dr. Bloom made, a, made this quote, or made this statement that I've pulled here as this quote, and he said this. He said that every professor knows that every student knows, or at least thinks he knows, um, that all truth is relative. 
that all truth is relative. Now, I think a good thing maybe to stop here for a second, because we've heard that term relativism, and maybe to define that term really quick, okay? By the way, there's a difference between relative thinking and relativism, okay? So anytime that you tag on an ISM, this suffix into a word, ism, it changes the word and the meaning of the word, and it changes it drastically, okay? It, when, you, when you tag that phrase or that, that, um, that suffix onto a word, ism, it changes the word into a worldview or a philosophy, okay? So let me give you the difference between relative thinking and relativism. Relative thinking would be this, okay? Uh, it would be, if, uh, if you were here, I used this example before. So if I make a relative thinking statement, it would be this. Brad, our pastor, is tall. Now that's a relative statement. That's either, right, that's a relative statement. It's a relative statement in the sense that I would need to compare Brad to someone else in order to verify that statement. So for example, if I were to say to you, Brad, our pastor, is tall, in comparison to me, well, that's a true statement. He is. He's taller than I am, right? Big guy. But if we compare Brad in tallness to LeBron James, well, that would be false, right? And we can all understand that. That's good thinking. That's right thinking, right? By the way, that thinking is either true or false, okay? So that's relative thinking. We do that all the time. It's good thinking. It's right thinking. Friends, that's different than relativism. Relativism says this, that there's, there are no absolute truths. So your truth about something is as good as my truth about something. So we can both be we can both have a disagreement over something, and in relativism, we would both be right. So for example, you could say to me that you believe in God. I could say to you that I don't believe in God. I do, but let's take for the sake of argument, okay? And then I said to you, well, what's true for you is true for you, and I know you've heard this before, right? And what's true for me is true for me. So we're both right. And then we go on our way. Now, I know you've heard that example. By the way, that can't be true, right? We both can't be right. There's, and there's no third option here. There's no third way. God either exists or he actually doesn't exist. And there's no in-between of that. It's exclusory in that way. So this idea, even though we've heard this term before, relativism, it gets passed through, right? This is kind of part and parcel, though, of the element of naturalism as well. And the reason is, is because one of the, one of the, the elements of naturalism that I left with you last week, and I even gave you the story of a former student of mine who was a naturalist. He graduated from a, he didn't actually graduate. He attended a private Christian school where I taught uh, and all the way through his 11th grade year, he eventually adopted full-orbed atheism, and he was a naturalist to the nth degree. And he was probably a more consistent one in some ways than a lot of atheists that I do know right now and have known. And one of his ways that he was carrying out his worldview of naturalism, as I mentioned to you last week, is he said that essentially... Um, we are determined by the chemicals in our brains. So it's just, the, it's just the motion of physical chemicals that's firing between neurons in our brain, and therefore we're sort of pre-programmed. And if we're pre-programmed, we don't have free will. And if we don't have free will, then how can you actually blame someone uh, for committing a crime? How can you hold that person responsible? And then how could you put that person in jail? This is an 11th grader. And he's thinking through this. And he's thinking through this really carefully. Friends, I wonder what you would actually say to that student if he posed that question to you. That we're just automatons, right? We are subjected to just the firing of the chemicals within our brains, if that's all we are, okay? 
And yet, that's where you get to when you get to this issue of relativism. What's true for you? What chemicals firing your brain is true for you? And what chemicals firing my brain? Well, that's true for me as well. And so we're just left in this culture with the box and everything that's within the box. And I would argue with that worldview, we're left in essentially chaos. And that's not good news, but that's sort of the culture that we are, we are involved with. So once again, how can we understand, how can you make the case for Christianity to, to give a truth claim for Christianity when someone holds not just a different idea than you, but a radically different worldview than you, okay? Well, to kind of push this idea a little bit further, um, I want to move from Dr. Bloom's quote that every professor, notice he starts with professor, that every professor knows, that every student knows, or at least thinks he knows, that all truth is relative, okay? Okay, it's a professor, he's at the University of Chicago, big deal, right? Well, enter the picture, okay? Now, if you see this in the handout, I know it's kind of not very clear up here on the screen, so I don't know how well you can see this uh, on your handout. Um, I know not well up here. But this picture was sent to me. Um, by the way, it's a PowerPoint presentation. It's in a classroom, okay? Uh, and it was sent to me a few years ago. I was teaching one day in class, and I received um, a message from a former student of mine. And I will not say her name to protect, protect her, although she knows I've used this, this uh, picture before in many, many settings. Um, but she sent me this picture. She's sitting in the class. By the way, she's sitting in a class, not at the University of Chicago, uh, but at the U of A. Okay? And she sends me this picture. She's sitting in the back of the classroom, and there are a few students up front. And she says, hey, Mr. Sutterfield, I thought you would enjoy seeing this. So here's the PowerPoint slide. And if you can't read it, let me tell you what it says across the top. There's a propositional statement at the top of the, um, of the slide. And it says that there is always an absolute truth. There is always an absolute truth. Okay? And I wasn't, to be honest with you, kind of too surprised at that. So I have to, have to really be careful here. So I want to stop here for a second. I, this is totally secondhand information. So to be Christ-like and to be intellectually honest, I have to admit this. I was not in that classroom. I do not know what this, what this professor had intended to do with this information. It could be a thought-invoking experiment. Totally could. It could be, to be quite honest, a way of showing relative thinking, not relativism. Okay? I just defined those. It could be a way of doing that. Totally right. Okay? But something happened next that kind of pushes this a little bit further uh, along than perhaps just relative thinking. And that is, if you see at the bottom of this, she's doing kind of like what we did when we voted last week, right? In the special conference, we, we took a vote, right? And you can see the results of that. Well, she took a survey in her class and tallied up the results, okay? So um, the results came in, and my, my, my student was sending me the, the results and, yeah, along with the picture. And my student said, okay, the results are in. Here's what the professor took a survey and that 70-something percent of the students in that room answered false. So you have to be careful how we think here, okay? So the statement is, there is always an absolute truth. And 70-plus percent of the students said that's false, that there's never an absolute truth, if you reverse that. 20-something percent, almost 30, um, said, answered true that there is always an absolute truth, okay? And then my student sent me the next message, which was really funny to me. Um, the professor said, and by the way, my student, my former student, was in the minority here. She answered 
true, that there is always an absolute truth. And the professor came back and said, those of you who answered true actually gave a wrong answer. The answer is false. And my student didn't know quite what to do with that. So let's just think about that for a second. There's always an absolute truth. And the teachers told her in the class that that's false. That there's, ne there's not never a, or always an absolute truth. There's not always an absolute truth. So I have to be honest with you. In my sinful nature, um, I, I posed back to her some, I, I wasn't being serious. But I did pose back to my former students some questions that she might want to think through. And, and she, she's struggling here with this. Like, what do I make of this? This teacher tells me that there's not always an absolute truth. I answered that there always is an absolute truth. What do I do with that? Right? So here's some things that I said back to my student. Once again, I, I would not advise to do this. This is not the right thing to do. But in my own sin nature, me kind of thinking through this, this is... These are some of the things I said to this student. I said, if there is never an absolute truth, don't worry about studying for the midterm exam. <laughs> it's totally okay, because your answer is as good as any other answer. So don't worry about studying. If, there's, if there is not always an absolute truth, then don't worry about studying for the exam. You're okay. And she knew I was not serious. And by the way, that teacher would have known that too. Um, another thing I said, uh, which you've already picked out, right? To say that it's false, that there is always an absolute truth, is actually to affirm what? That there's an absolute truth. And it always chases itself in this way, right? You can never escape truth. It's inescapable. It's actually a self-refuting, what's called self-refuting argument to be made. If you say there's no such thing as truth, I know you've heard this statement, right? That there's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, you've violated it. It's, that's self-refuting because there's at least one truth that's absolute. And it's what you just said, that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And that's essentially what's being kind of prompted up, or propped up here as well. So don't study. This is sort of self-refuting, right? Um... The third thing I said or thought of, and I thought of this because this is not a new thought with me. This actually happened a long time ago with another teacher. Okay? And I'll tell you who that teacher is in a second. Um, and I thought to myself that, okay, if this, is, if this is true, that there's never an absolute truth, then um, don't worry about paying any attention to any lecture or anything that the teacher says. Because the teacher can't teach you anything that's new or anything that's true. And the reason is, if your truth, there's no absolutes, and if your truth is as good as my truth, then anything you say to me, um, you're not really teaching me anything. You're just telling me how you feel or how you think. I'm telling you how I feel, how I think, and they're equally true. By the way, that... That argument was held up a long time ago by a very famous teacher, and his name was Socrates. So Plato writes in his dialogue to Socrates, and he poses the same question. Socrates, by the way, faced the same problem that we're facing today. When you get into a culture, as a matter of fact, it's eerily similar. When you get into a culture that denies ultimate truth, absolute truth, then how do you know anything? Where do you go? And every time, friends, every time that happens in culture, when you study human history, there's always a group of teachers or universities that rise up to the top. And that's exactly what happened during the time of Socrates. They're called sophists. And sophists weren't interested in truth. They thought the same way that most, most students and professors think today. There's no way to know what's absolutely true, or if there is truth at all. So their view was, do whatever works. This is pragmatism. And Socrates was smart enough to know that if there weren't such thing as an absolute truth, then not just thinking would go away, culture 
would fall, Western culture would fall apart. And Socrates was smart enough to know to press that particular teacher of his time that if you say there's no absolute truth, then you have nothing to teach. And that's, that's scary, right? Anyone in here who is a teacher knows that's ridiculous, right? Anyone in here who's not a teacher knows that's ultimately ridiculous. So my student was kind of caught in this quandary as well. Last thing I said to the student, and I'll move on. This is a class on statistical communication. I'm not sure what exactly that means. But nonetheless, it's a class on communication, okay? And I think, just to be super, just to defend the professor, I think what she was trying to do was to illustrate that if you study statistically things between cultures, that those statistics may differ. And rightly so, that's relative thinking, okay? But once again, that's not quite what's being expressed here in this, in this slide. And if that's true, if it's, if it's false, if it's false that there are always an absolute truth, that's a falsehood, then the very premise of that class would fall apart. Why? Because without, without an absolute truth, you lose the ability, the ground of thinking, you lose the ability to communicate. There would be no distinction between what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's not true. Okay, so I'm gonna pause here for a second. Questions over that before I move on. So I'm gonna have you think very carefully with me, and this is always a danger, I know, but to think carefully with me just for a few minutes about how this actually, what's being challenged here, and then how in the world are we gonna apply this back to naturalism? So I'll pause here for a second. Anything you wanna ask me about the picture or the quote? All right, let's go to the next part. So what's at stake here? So Socrates says that actually what's at stake here is Western thought, Western civilization. Um, and when Socrates makes that argument <clears throat> against sophism and sophism. Well, what's at stake here is the law of logic, the law of logic. Now, I've dreaded this lesson all week long. I have to tell you this. This is, this is something that's preying on my mind all week, okay? Because going back to my introductory statement, I say something like that, and part of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and others of you have never heard that, or your, your mind starts to wander. So I'm gonna condense this in hope to make it make sense, and yet to be true to this as well, okay? So what's at stake here with this quote um, that the professor put up. So this is, yes, you're right. This is number three, which is, the, what's at stake here is the way that we think, which is the law of, of non-contradiction, okay? So what in the world, um, what a world that we mean by something like this? So before I define this term, let me, let me say this really quick. Um, the law of logic is made up of several things, but two, two laws in particular, and I'm going to explain something to you that's actually what's it's called self-evident, okay? Um, and a self, you know, I know you know that term, but a self-evident truth is something that's it's kind of like, oh yeah, of course I knew that, right? But it may take a little bit of explaining, but in that explanation, you actually know this to be true, okay? So what in the world do we mean by the law of non-contradiction? And... Um, also by another law as well, which I won't focus much on today, I'll pick this up next week, <clears throat> which is the law of causality. Like, what do we mean by these things? These sound really, really technical, really hard. You may be sitting in here thinking, yeah, I totally should not have shown up today. This is the wrong place for me. <laughs> so hang on, hang with me for just a second, okay? So the law of non-contradiction is simply this. Um, it is saying that something cannot be A or non-A 
at the same time and in the same relationship. And A in non-A is just representations of things. So something can't be A and non-A at the same time in the same relationship. Okay? So let me give you, once again, you know this. This is part and parcel of how you think, how you communicate, how you act. So William didn't know this, but I'm super glad William showed up because I'm going to have William demonstrate the law of non-contradiction. Okay? Are you ready, William? Are you masked up and ready to go? Okay. So I'm going to have William come up. We did not plan this, as you can see. Um, I would like for William to hand me my water bottle. Thank you, William. Now, William, how did you know that's a water bottle? God is a water bottle. Okay, you can have a seat. Give him, give him a hand, because he... It's very good. Now, that seems like a silly example, and for friends, perhaps there is a silly example. <clears throat> but the example is really important, because notice what William did not try to do. He didn't try to hand me a pew. Uh, he didn't try to pick up Mr. McCollum and hand him to me. He picked up a water bottle. And by doing that, he distinguished, he made a distinction between the relationship of the water bottle being something in and of itself. It can't be something, it can't be a water bottle and not a water bottle at the same time and in the same relationship. And we all do this all the time. This is why the law of non-contradiction is sort of the framework with which we think. It is the content of thinking. So I know you've heard this before. Um, we don't want to tell you what to think, we want to teach you how to think. That's what the law of non-contradiction is. It doesn't tell you what to think, it tells you how to think. And that's really important. Let me give you another example. Once again, I know you know this, but just to reiterate the point. Um, what if I said to you that Jesus is the Christ and the Antichrist? Well, that would be a heresy, yes. That would also be a nonsense statement as well. Jesus, who is a person, can't be A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. You can't, he can't be um, the Christ and not the Christ at the same time and in the same relationship. Friends, we think this way all the time because the foundation, once again, of our thinking revolves around this, okay? You can't have one without the other. And by the way, even in scripture, yes, God has revealed himself and he's revealed himself to thinking people because what ultimately that we'll see is that the ground even of truth is God himself that he has built into his own revelation underneath the framework of this, the very means of thinking. I'll give you an example. In the Old Testament, Genesis, at the very onset, chapter three, right at the fall, God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree, if you do A, then B will happen. You will surely what? You'll die. If you do A, then B. It's a logical construction. Satan comes along and says, actually, if you do A, then non-B will happen. If you eat the tree, then you will what? Well, you'll not surely die. And there is, at the very precipice of things, the issue between a lie. Right? And this is the fall. And it wasn't because Adam and Eve had, didn't have the ability to think clearly. They most certainly had the ability to think clearly. But Satan comes in the sense of a lie. So even on the, even on the underneath of all this, we see how um, God is working in that. So what happens when we deny this law that runs our lives? By the way, I only focused on the law of non-contradiction. There's also the law of causality which says that every effect must have a cause. Every effect must have a cause. That may mean nothing to you, 
but it means a great deal to you if you go to the doctor because um, science runs on these things as well. If you don't have the law of non-contradiction and the law of causality, friends, you don't have science, which the word science, skinty, actually means knowledge. Right? So if you go to the doctor and you have a stomach ache, you want to know what the cause is, and there may be multiple reasons or causes for that. Every effect must have a prior cause to it. So we'll get into that next week. So this issue of law of non-contradiction, though, which is which causality is just an extension of that, um, can be denied, and we see that happen all the time. So we live in a culture today, just to press the point, we live in a culture today that's dominated by this worldview of naturalism. Everything's in the box, nothing's outside the box. Right? Everything's explained inside the box of itself. And therefore, we live in a culture today that says and denies all kinds of things. So what happens, for instance, if you um, deny this very law uh, on which God has put into our minds to think? Matter of fact, if you want to think about the law of non-contradiction, you might be able to think of it this way. Um, It is the guardrails with which God is placed in our minds, and I know I'm leaping in that argument. I've not made a case for the existence of God. I know that. But just for the moment to think of it that these laws of logic aren't something that's just exclusory for someone else. These are the guardrails that God has put in our our mind, the police of our thoughts that keep us on track. Can we be wrong in our thinking? Yes. Can we misjudge things? Absolutely we can. But friends, this is why we never judge truth. Truth always judges us. And truth will judge whether something is right or wrong. And I want to make this argument a little bit further in a few minutes, but just to kind of set the the stage for that. So what happens when people deny the law of non-contradiction? By the way, I would argue with you that if you're a Christian, you would not want to negotiate to deny these laws. Because if you do, you give up anything that you can say. Everything you say is, is nonsense at this point. And I would argue that you're actually going against the very nature of who God is. But really quickly, what, is, what, is, uh, what does it mean to deny um, the law of non-contradiction? What happens? Well, one of the things that happens is, if this is number one on part B, um, if, the law, um, if, um, if the law of non-contradiction is denied, then communication is impossible. Okay? If the law of non-contradiction is denied, There is no such thing as communication. Back to my example with William, right? If William did not understand the difference between the opposites, then he would have tried to hand me anything. And for me to try to communicate to him would be totally and utterly impossible. Friends, back to that that, uh, slide again from my former student, it's false that there's always an absolute. If that's true, then there's no communications class because there's nothing to communicate. Communication falls away. By the way, statistics fall away too. Because if there's no absolute truth, then numbers themselves, mathematics themselves, fall away. And we're left with nonsense in that. So if the law of non-contradiction is denied, communication is lost. I can't communicate anything to you, nor will you be able to understand me. Same thing with God writing in his word. God is reasonable. He's not duplicitous. He doesn't tell us lies. He's the grounds of this. He's the formation of this. Uh, Number two, if the law of non-contradiction is denied, then conduct and action are also denied. So what do I mean by that? Well, last week I said to you, so I'm going to kind of push this point a little further, that if you deny the law of non-contradiction, if you're a relativist, Um, that is always, everywhere, forced and temporary. It's always, in all times, forced and temporary. If you say that you're a relativist, which means you're denying the law of non-contradiction, it is always forced and it's always temporary. So let me give you a real example that happened this week. I I won't say his name to protect the innocent, but there is a said young man in my family, youngest son, who is learning to drive. 
And this week, we spent a condensed time of me teaching him how to drive, right? Um, and so we go to this big parking lot that sort of has a road in the middle of it. And so we're, first we get in, we start it up, and we're, you know, check the weird ones. And then we're like driving through. And then I started to notice that young son of mine, youngest, um, when he would pull out into the street, the street that runs through the, um, the parking lot, he would stay on the left side. And I was like, young son of mine, <laughs> get on the right side. <laughs> uh, because if you don't stay on the right side, you're going to get eventually on the road and you're going to get hit. And it's going to be bad. He goes, oh, okay, I forgot. So he gets on the right side. And then we pull out again, and he goes to the left. Because you got to go to the right, right. So what's that have to do with anything? Well, the law of non-contradiction says that um, if, you are, if you deny it, I should say, if you deny the law of non-contradiction, then uh, that conduct, that action that you're exhibiting will be forced and will be temporary every time. right? Um, because young son of mine could have said to me, well, your truth is for people to drive on the right side of the road, which he asked me, like, why do people drive on the right side of the road? Which I'll pose that to you and you can answer me later. Why do people here drive on the right side of the road and other people places they drive on the left? That's another story. But he said, well, why? Um, why drive on the, the right side of the road, right, versus the left? It's a long conversation. But if he were a relativist, he would say, well, me driving on the right side of the road it's fine for me. You driving on the right or left side of the road is right for you. Either way, it's all good. We're good on this. And we know that's not going to work. That's a silly example. But once again, these examples always do run silly because any time, I know I've said that word like 10 times, because any time that you deny this law, you run into nonsense, craziness, right? Every time. So we want to make sure that as a Christian, you are not denying these things. You're affirming these things because Ultimate things can be lost. Communication's lost, thinking's lost, or um, conduct is lost. And the number three, I gave it away. If the law of non-contradiction is lost, then thinking is lost as well. Or if it's denied, if the law of denied, then thinking is, is lost in all this. Once again, there's no way to communicate the difference between things. Okay? So Williams a good, gave us that good example um, of that. Okay? So I'll pause here, wake you up. Question. I haven't got to an argument yet, I know. I'm building toward that, and it'll be quick. I know I've just proven to you a self-evident truth, but I have to underscore that that self-evident truth is oftentimes denied in this culture that's dominated by naturalism. This may be the most important thing I can tell for you or to you, to your kids. Friends, I don't have to be Alan Bloom in the University of Chicago. I've taught for 20 years at the U of A and at the school I'm at now. And I see this every day from students who are growing up and have grown up in the church. You're not immune to this. Your kids are not immune to this. They are steeped in this. And it takes about three questions into a conversation to scratch that surface to pull that out. It's very easy to do. Yes? So what would those three questions be? Um, I think a good place to start would be back to that slide again. So first of all, is there such thing as truth? And it may be because we just haven't defined our terms really well. So an absolute truth, which I'm arguing is the law of non-contradiction, so what is an absolute truth? Good place to start. Well, an absolute truth is something that's universal and it's necessary. It's universal and it's necessary. So can you press that on them? Like, can you tell me a universal and necessary truth? Or another question is, are all truths equal? So I had a conversation this week with my neighbor. 
And I'm not quite sure kind of where he was headed in this argument, but here's what he said, and here's what I said back to him. He said, you know, there are Methodists and there are Church of Christ and there are Baptists, and they all have different interpretations. So who do you believe? Good question, right? And I said back to him without trying to get into all the doctrines of everything they believe, I said, well... Um, there is one, what we can affirm is this, that there is one primary truth that's being communicated in whatever text or doctrine that is. There is a primary truth to that. And we know that if one group is saying this and another person or group is saying the opposite, A and non-A, that both of them can't be right. As a matter of fact, friends, we can all be wrong, right? We could all be wrong in that. That does not mean that there is not a right there is not a truth. And this is what careful hermeneutics, this fancy word for interpretation, what you want to get back to, right? So the scriptures are actually should be interpreting itself, not you imposing something onto the text. That's just a casual conversation this week with my neighbor. So once again, he's, he's toying with, or he's, he's struggling with these ideas. So I think that's a couple of good questions to look at for sure. Yeah. One thing that I found helpful to, to answer that question. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. On the handout, <clears throat> once again, if you have further questions, please ask. On the handout, um, just a little sidetrack here. There are oftentimes, and I bet you've heard this, Christianity has been accused of being contradictory. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this. The Bible's full of contradictions. And I always want to tell, I've had students tell me this, right? And I always want to stop and say kind of what Kevin's saying. And I will say, these are the exact words I say, Okay. Bible's full of contradictions is what's posed to me. And then this is my comeback, and I'll say, okay, if that's true, if it's true, <laughs> um, then I'm banking my life on this. So I would like for you to tell me, so here's the Bible. I'm going to open it up. I had one student tell me once that part of the Bible's true and part of it's not true. It's the same idea. So I did this exact thing. I opened it up, and I said, okay, here's a passage from Isaiah 52. Can you tell me what part's true and what part's not true? Because my life's banking on this. And I slid this book across, the same Bible, I slid it across. I was like, tell me this. How do you know that? He's like, well, I can't do that. He's like, why can't you do that? He's like, I don't know. I said, you're right, you don't know. He said, my youth pastor told me this. And I was like, well, tell your youth pastor, I love him to death, come and talk to me, but he needs to get out of the ministry because he's killing people by saying crazy stuff like this. So it's either true or it's not true. There's no kind of in-between in that. And yet, you and I have been posed with the fact that Christianity is full of contradictions. So if you try to press somebody on that, like, give me a contradiction. What do you think is contradictory? Oftentimes, they're like, well, I don't know. It's just full of contradictions, I know. Okay? So let me give you three. This is how I usually say, well, let me give you three to how it's perceived to be contradictory. The Trinity, the person of Christ, and the sovereignty of God and man's freedom. Like, these are biggies. I've got three minutes. Let me explain these. <laughs> the Trinity. So if you, if you, if you zoomed in on the um, systematic theology class, one of the topics that we covered is the Trinity. And by definition, the Trinity is this. That God is one in essence, and he's three in person. He's one in essence, he's three in person. He's one in A, he's three in B. Friends, that's not a contradiction. What's contradictory would be this, that God's one in essence and he's three in essence. He's one in A, he's three in A. That's contradictory. But just as a construction of a sentence, it's not contradictory at all. Now, is it a mystery? Uh-huh. Can I explain that in the details? No way. But it is a mystery of who God is, but nonetheless, it's not contradictory, just as the statement goes. The person of Christ, if you reverse the idea of, the, of the, the construction of the Trinity, the person of Christ is this, that Jesus is one in person, 
and two in natures. He's one in person, he's two in natures. He's truly God and truly man. He's one in A, he's two in B. Right? It would be contradictory to say he's one in person and two in persons, or he's one in nature and two in natures. That's contradictory. And that's not what we see here. Now, is this a mystery? Yes. I'm not trying to deny that. Number three, God's sovereignty and man's freedom. Like, how in the world do you, do you delineate between these things? Isn't that contradictory? And the answer is no. Why? How is that? Well, it would be contradictory if you equate freedom with autonomy. Autonomy means I'm a self-law. I'm a law unto myself. I'm my own God. God has no control over me. Like you've heard people say, God's freedom ends, where God's freedom ends, man's freedom begins. Well, friends, if, if that's true, then man is God, not God. So we have to be careful how we define these things. The scripture is very clear. Man is free. We're free to choose. As a matter of fact, we have our mind choosing all the time. But we're also told that we're in bondage to sin. We're slaves to sin. And that, yes, we are free, but God is more free. He's the freest of beings. And if I could relate this really quick to an analogy, it would be this. It would be a father and a son in a household together. And the son is free. He's a volitional creature. creature. He can do what he wants to, to an extent. But the father is more free. And that the son, his actions will ultimately be he'll be responsible for those actions to his father. So if we mean by freedom, autonomy, then that's called dualism. You've got two competing things. And that's never, never talked about in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, autonomy is associated in the scriptures with lawlessness and sin. The Tower of Babel is an example of man's attempt to be autonomous. The Garden of Eden in the fall is man's attempt to be autonomous. Notice I gave you that construction. If you recall the rest of that, Satan says, if you do this, you will be like what? You'll be like God. It's our own sinful desire to be autonomous. And yet, that is not the case in the scriptures. We are free, but we're not autonomous. God is sovereign. So there's not a, there's not a contradiction there. It would be contradictory to say, Autonomy and freedom. Last thing. How in the world, or what in the world, does this have to do with naturalism? Okay? But two minutes. I'm going to run through this fairly quickly. Please email me, and I'll touch on this next week as well. What in the world does this slides and A and non-A, what does this have to do with naturalism? Well, friends, the very first thing I said to you today is this. That... If there's anything that transcends the box, if there's one thing that transcends the box, it would go against the very premise of naturalism. And if that's so, then this worldview would fall apart. Here's one thing that transcends the box, and I've been using it the whole time. It is the law of logic. It is truth itself. And truth is not dependent upon anything in the box. Actually, it exists and transcends beyond the box. And yet, truth has to be grounded in something. So what does this mean? By the way, this is an example from an argument by a guy named Gordon Clark, who actually stole this from Augustine. Okay? And here's, here's Gordon Clark's argument for truth. This is called transcendent argument. And his first premise is this, truth exists. And if you say truth does not exist, you've just affirmed truth. And you can't escape it. It's constantly there. Truth exists, and if you deny it, you are affirming it. <laughs> um, number two, truth is immutable. It doesn't change. Mutation something that changes. We change all the time. Truth never changes. The law of non-contradiction is true today as it was yesterday, as it will be 10,000 years from now. It is immutable. 
It does not change. And if you say it changes, you have used the law of non-contradiction as a proof for it. It's like saying I'm going to argue against logic, but to do that, I have to use logic to do that. It's self-refuting. Truth exists, number two, it's immutable. Number three, um, truth is eternal. Friends, I was born on January the 17th, 1969. I've already given away my age on this, right? Did the law of non-contradiction exist before I was born? Did two plus two equals four? Two variables plus two variables equal four variables. Is that, is that true before I was born? Well, of course it was. I will die someday. And that truth will go on. It's not dependent upon me. Friends, let me give you a secret. You will die someday. You were born, that truth was in existence. You will die, that truth will go on. It's eternal. Truth exists. It is immutable. It's eternal. Number four, truth is mental. It depends upon a mind. But it can't just depend upon my mind. Because, friends, my mind changes and eventually it will go away. But this truth stays. So we have to have another mind, a mind that is immutable and eternal also. Because if it's just dependent, I know the naturalist will say, well, see, that proves my point. It's dependent on your mind. But this truth goes on after my mind has gone out of existence. It has to depend on another mind. A mind that's immutable, doesn't change, and that's eternal. And this is why Clark says, number five, that truth is superior to human mind. If we are just chemicals in our brain that's firing, we have no explanation for human logic. Because that would mean that we would all have to have the same chemical firing in our brain at the same time. And then that would eventually kind of go away as well. And Clark is arguing, because Augustine is arguing this too, that this mind, this truth, is connected to a mind. And this mind, once again, is eternal. It's unchangeable. This is why, on number six, that truth, and I struggled with the preposition here, to be honest with you, truth is from, truth is of, God himself. If truth is held in a mind and truth is eternal, it exists, and is eternal and immutable, and my mind is not, and yet that truth continues on after my mind goes away, then friends, something, some mind, has to hold this, as we are told. And this mind, once again, has to exist, and not just exist, it has to be immutable, it can't change, and this mind has to be eternal and self-existent and and uh, non-contingent, all these things. This is the mind of God. When we deny truth, we are ultimately attacking the very character of God himself. And I would take, if you, don't doubt, if you doubt that, I would take you to Genesis 3 once again. That's exactly what's happening. And once again, I have not made an argument fully for the existence of God nor the scriptures themselves, but this surely does start to lead us in this way. Truth exists. It's immutable. It's eternal. It's mental, but it's not dependent on my mind. It's actually superior to that. But it's dependent in, 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 in part and parcel of God himself because it's from God. Augustine said this. I'll end this because I'm about four minutes over. But I'm going to end with this quote because Clark steals this argument from Augustine. And Augustine said that all truth is God's truth, is from God. In his book on the Confessions, if you've never read the Confessions, you should read this book, right? In his book on the conf in his Confessions, I end today with this paragraph from Augustine on this very notion. Listen to what Augustine says here. It's beautiful. And I'd rather end with his beautiful words than me stumbling through this. Augustine says this, Lord God of truth. Surely the person with the scientific knowledge of nature is not pleasing to you on that ground alone. The person who knows all the matters 
but is ignorant of you is unhappy. The person who knows you, even if ignorant of natural science, is happy. Indeed, the one who knows both you and nature is not on that account happier. You alone are his source of happiness. If knowing you, he glorifies you for what you are and gives you thanks and is not lost in his own imagined ideas. Listen to what Augustine says here. A man who knows that he owns a tree and gives thanks to you for the use of it, enough though he does not know exactly how many cubits high it is or what its width is or its, or its uh, span, is better than the man who measures it and counts all its branches but does not own it, nor does he know and love the one who made it, his creator. Augustine is saying you can know all the molecules inside the box. You can know all the trees inside the box. You can count them. You can know all the branches. But if you don't know and acknowledge the maker of those trees in this box, you will ultimately be the most unhappy. And he doesn't mean that in sort of the transitory sense. He means that in the ultimate sense. Augustine says, he is the Lord God of truth. And that truth is not found in me. It's actually external. It's the guardrails by which he has put in your mind. I don't judge truth. Friends, truth always judges me. And if you read his word, that's exactly what you find. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that you are this God of truth and that we don't have to run away from these things, be scared of these things when people and cultures um, tell us different things. Lord, that we can trust truth because we, it is from you and we ultimately trust you because you are good and right and true. Father, it's not by accident that the Lord Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by him, that those things are connected together because all things are held together in Christ. Lord, we pray for the remainder of the service today, pray for, um, that your name would be glorified and that your truth would be magnified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.